I'm Annie Hood. Hello and welcome to Well Intel. This is the podcast that joins the dots on well-being perspective and everyday relevance. Today, I'm introducing our very first guest to the Well Intel series. Sheila Heyman is a BAFTA and BAFTA Fulbright winning documentary filmmaker. She is Director's Fellow at the MIT Media Lab and currently advisor to Cambridge University's Mindaroo Centre for Technology and Democracy. In 2012, she wrote, produced and directed a multilingual miniseries about the Enlightenment, which was seen by over 150 million people. She is erudite, creative and has the unique gift of being able to seamlessly combine creative genius with intellectual rigour. Her enduring interest is in the relationship between people and technology, and it is her foresight and forensic exactitude for truth that makes hearing what she has to say so valuable. Hello, Sheila. Welcome to Well Intel. Thank you. Very nice to be here. Sheila, there are polarised views abound on the threats and the advantages of generative AI. And just yesterday, Jan LeCun, who's Meta's chief AI scientist, said artificial intelligence is still dumber than cats. But just a few weeks ago, Mo Goldat shared his concern that very soon, ChatGPT will have an IQ of 1500 against Einstein's 160. How do you feel about the way generative AI is being positioned and why? Well, let me first say about Mo Godap. Einstein's IQ was not 165. It's now thought to have been about 125. The way IQ works does not multiply in the way that he was referring to. It wouldn't be possible to have an IQ of 1500. And even if you could, it would simply refer to a very abstract form of reasoning and dealing with information, which is a very, very tiny fraction of human intelligence. Jan LeCun, I think, is one of the good guys, and he's one of the very few people inside the industry who's actually measured and reasoned about it. One of the few people who's actually got skin in the game and is working for a big commercial company who says things which seem to me to be pretty reasonable and truthful. And certainly cats are enormously intelligent, as all of us who have cats know. Any living thing, so a spider, a bee, an ant, a cat, that has a model of the world, can plan, can perform actions within it, can operate and manoeuvre within it, is more intelligent than the most intelligent AI can ever be. And so I think if you look at what it actually is, what is generative AI? It is a database of all the words on the internet which is used to predict the answers to questions or solve abstract problems. It's enormous, it's incredibly fast, it's incredibly powerful, but all it knows is binary code. All it knows is one and zero. And anything it learns has to be expressed in that code and can only be expressed in that code. And all it can do with the code is find, compare, remember and predict. So you can do a lot with that, but it has no concepts, no understanding, no understanding of anything that either generates or is fed. It has no experience of the world or anything else. And crucially, I think for me, it is nothing to say. It's a dead thing. It's a dead machine which only knows binary code and it's incredibly useful for lots and lots of things particularly things that we can't do don't want to do or find boring but it's not intelligent and Sheila why is it the enemy that some are making it out to be it is the enemy in lots of ways 
one of the ways in which it's the enemy is that it's extremely fast and, as I said, extremely powerful, and it can operate multidimensionally. So you can generate literally millions of spam messages, fake news items, trolling Instagram posts in no time at all from anywhere. They can be anonymized, they can be untraceable. You know, it's very, very powerful as a disruptor of the social order because it can imitate nasty people very easily. And, of course, it has no problem with imitating nasty people because it's not alive and it doesn't know what it's doing. So I think in that sense, it is very dangerous. It's a dead machine that's just spouting code. I think the danger comes from the people behind it, as usual. The people behind it, many of whom are completely ruthless, are engaged in a sort of wild arms race with each other, no matter what, without any kind of thought of the consequences, and who have only profit as their motive, and who seek profit by seeking out the lowest common denominator in human culture and human interactions. It's not the technology. The technology is neutral. It's what's being done with the technology, who's pushing it, to whom, in what way, and in a completely unbridled way, which governments seem to be completely unable to control, and which is a sort of, as I said, it's an arms race with no positive point, as far as I can see. Aren't those the points that Mogodat and others are making, that those are the threats that they are outlining that need to be recognised and be worried about? Some of the things that he says about the fact that we need to be very careful about the fact that we need regulation and control, about the fact that governments need to step in, about the fact that people need to be wary. I think all those things are perfectly reasonable. But there is another thing operating in this space, which is that there's a very, very long history of technology and religion being sort of mixed up with each other. There's a very long history of technological worship and technological determinism. And of course, the people who've invented this technology want us to believe that it's leading to the end times, that it's omnipotent, that it's all-powerful, that it can do anything, because it makes them seem incredibly important for having invented it. And it makes also, conveniently, it makes it seem that they are the only people who can save us from it. So it makes them, again, puts them in the strongest position to control this thing. This is very ridiculous and far from the truth. I mean, this is something that goes back through history, this idea that somehow that technology is inevitable and that it's something that we can't resist and we can't conquer and we just have to yield to it and we have to let the people who've invented it become, in effect, our priests. I want to take a moment to circle back. What Sheila is saying is that there are a number of perspectives that you and I need to be aware of when considering the proliferation, the explosion of AI and generative AI. First, the spectrum of view is vast, but there are two key differentiate threads and labels. One is scholarship and activism, in other words, academic research, investigative journalism, granular evidence, and the other is much less tethered to validated research. It's more sensationalist, designed to shock, even create fear. Emily Bender, professor at the University of Washington, coins these two threads or perspectives very well. First, the AI safety perspective that she describes as inspired fantasies of AI going rogue and destroying humanity. The second, the AI ethics perspective, those seeking to illuminate 
and address actual harms being done in the name of AI. These two perspectives are the ones that you're going to see time and again played out by different people in different geographies all over the world. And it's really helpful to have them defined in the way that Emily describes. You've mentioned when we've chatted about AI being the perfect complement to human intelligence. Could you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, I think this is the thing that another thing that's often missed, but is really charming in a way and gives me hope. It's that it's actually perfectly complementary to our intelligence. You know, think about a computer. A computer is tireless. They're patient. They don't forget. They don't get emotional. And they can do the same thing over and over and over again, massively quickly, massively perfectly, in exactly the same way, forever, with no problem. But they can't deal with ambiguity. They can't form concepts or theories. They have no experience. They have no understanding. They can't invent. They can't imagine. Humans are easily bored. We love ambiguity. We're endlessly creative and inventive. But we do get tired and we get cross and we never do the same thing in quite the same way twice. So I think it seems obvious that we should regard computers as complementary to ourselves, not competitive, and to deploy their extraordinary capabilities to better humankind and not, as it were, subserve ourselves to the will of the computer and the inevitability of its dominance. And with all of that in mind, this polarity that I sort of started this conversation with, what would you say are the threats and the advantages of the AI evolution? Because it's here, it's not stopping, it is going forward. So what are the wins and what are the things that we really should be concerned about? It turns out that the thing it's most useful for is actually writing code. It's very good at writing code because... It writes code and then software engineers can easily check the code that it's written and see whether it's got bugs in it. That's a sort of routine thing to do. However, when it's generating words and it does what's politely called hallucinating, which means making things up, that's not always so easy to spot. I mean, that is the thing. It's sort of like a very eager pupil in the class who always shoots their hand up whether or not they know the answer. It is trained to give you an answer. And it will give you a different answer every time you ask the same question, which may or may not conform to any observable and testable reality. And you can't know when that's happening, because even the people who make it don't know how it actually works. They don't know how it comes up with the answers it comes up with. And so it's dangerous from that perspective, because it can just randomly tell you something that's completely bonkers. I mean, I asked... Ages ago, when GPT-3 came out, I decided to ask it about myself, and it came up with some generally truthful kinds of observations and things that I might have done but hadn't actually done, and then it said I died in 2016. Well, you know, that was news to me. So that is one danger, that people will take it for true, they will take it for being an arbiter of truth. Another danger, which is incredibly important, is the energy budgets. I mean, to ask a question using a language model, so to ask a question using normal speech, as it were, as opposed to just putting a search into a Google search bar, uses about five times as much electricity. So you're using five times as much electricity for every single one of the billions and billions of searches that people enter into their devices every day. And the benefit of that is what? 
The next one, which we've sort of talked about already, is that it's extremely powerful, but also very stupid, and it can be deployed to spread misinformation and disinformation extremely quickly all over the world, pretty much unhindered. And we've seen in the last couple of years all kinds of consequences of this, which are absolutely catastrophic in the way that they set people against each other. Because, of course, the algorithms are programmed to maximise profit, and the way you maximise profit is by making things as sensational as possible and polarising as possible. So that's the second thing. So data centres already use 20% of the electricity in the whole of the island of Ireland, and it's predicted to rise to about 38% within the next few years. I mean, can you imagine that being sustainable, that kind of graph continuing to rise in that way when we're facing already a climate and ecological emergency of unprecedented kind. I can't see why anybody would think that was a good idea myself. Everything you've just said for the last few minutes is captured in morals and ethics and how we prioritise different things in our society, whether it's the fakery that AI is being harnessed for to create more division to whip up anger uncertainty and of course the climate priorities of where that energy spend goes whether it's agricultural whether it's spent on harnessing space for all of this technological I think you call it dark data how would you mitigate those moral and ethical risks Sheila? I think you have to break up the monopolies of the tech companies. I think you have to regulate what they're allowed to develop and how. I think you have to monitor and regulate and control what gets disseminated on platforms and you have to make the platforms responsible for what gets disseminated on them. You have to look at the internet as, in essence, the internet is the modern equivalent of the post office. Now, you know, the post office was a a nationalised and very carefully regulated system for very good reason. And we have substituted that with a completely unregulated international system monopolised by a very small number of companies, mostly on the west coast of the United States, who have absolutely no motivation but profit. That can't be right. So governments have to step in. We have to have regulation. But also, you know, people have to step in. People have to not click on those incredibly inflammatory things. They have to not follow the sort of seduction and the delusion of convenience. Quite frankly, they have to delete their emails when they don't need them anymore. I mean, you referred to dark data. Dark data is, it basically refers to data that was usually only ever intended to be used once and then to be deleted and never used, but it ends up getting stored. And it ends up, whether it's, you know, the fact that you've got three copies of every photograph that you've ever taken, or whether it's that you don't delete email chains when they come to you, or it's whether that you don't bother to go to the shop, but you get something delivered to you, probably by a company which treats its workers abominably. You know, we can all make an effort to actually do things ourselves with the minds and bodies that we've been given to exercise our intelligence, to exercise our self-restraint, to exercise our moral capabilities. I suppose that then leads into the connection between the mind and the body in human intelligence, which is something, as you know, that I'm extremely concerned about. And the whole vector of the transition to digital, which has had obviously huge advantages. I mean, anybody would want to have the whole world's knowledge, all their friends and every band that ever played a song in their back pocket. Who wouldn't want that? 
So it has huge advantages, but unfortunately the disadvantage of the transition to digital is that it has disconnected us from the way we have been evolved over millions of years to interact with the world. And that's by understanding things physically and through our senses and being able to trace them and track them and identify them and know where they are and where they've come from. You know, physical newspaper or a physical book, you know where it is, you know where it's come from and you know who produced it. A piece of code is completely untraceable and it looks exactly like every other piece of code and it can be therefore, as we've discussed at length, used to all kinds of nefarious purposes. So I'm not saying we have to completely abandon everything that's happened because it's obviously not going to happen. We're not going to abandon everything digital. We're not going to go back to a world where every object has to be physical and it doesn't have a digital form. But I do think we need to be incredibly aware of the seductions of convenience that digital presents to us because the more convenient things become the more easy it becomes for us to basically sit in a chair and live our lives vicariously the more sick and sad and stupid we become it's not the way we've evolved to be and we have to swerve ourselves back to living in the way that other animals and other parts of nature live so that we can sustain them as well as ourselves If you were the CEO of a large multinational or a world leader, what would you be most concerned about through the lens of AI and generative AI? I think what I would be likely to be concerned about and what I think I should be concerned about wearing that hat are probably two slightly different things. I think what CEOs are probably concerned about most from what I can gather is this idea that somebody else will steal a march on them by replacing their human workers with computers and that these computers will be much faster and much more efficient and they will do things much more quickly and therefore they will earn more profits and therefore they will outgun the company that I'm running with my human operatives. And I think there obviously are, as I started off by saying, the computers are incredibly good at the dirty, the dangerous and the dull. And amongst the dull, unfortunately, we have to number a very, very large number of the jobs that people are doing at the moment. Most of the jobs, many of the jobs in the world don't need to be done and have only been invented in order to make work or to satisfy middle managers. I don't really know perfectly honestly why most of the jobs in the world exist, but many of them are extremely boring and something terrifying like 40% of the people in many Western European countries think that the job they do is either useless or actively harmful. So for a start, you know, there's lots of jobs that shouldn't be done, but if you take the dull bits of those jobs and automate them as you can, you know, that probably will give you a competitive advantage. I mean, everybody knows that we as humans, we are versatile, we're intelligent, we're actually designed to solve problems, we're actually designed to seek out creative solutions to problems, that's how we evolved, that's how we survived in the world. And, you know, human capital is the most important thing that any company has. And there's been really interesting research about this. Sarah Connor in the FT does a lot of interesting research about this, about what people like and don't like about their jobs, but also about the fact that when people install surveillance software, their employees hate it and they very, very quickly find ways to circumvent it. The thing that people most dislike about jobs is when they're treated like a piece of code in somebody else's machine, when they're not given 
the ability to use their own agency, their own God-given, extraordinary, versatile, creative intelligence to do the job in the way that they see fit and the way that they see best. And I think any company that really values its employees, that trusts them, that's really important. Trust your employees to do a good job and to want to do a good job and make sure that the job you give them is one that they want to do. And don't think that a person like that, with all the incredible abilities that a person has, can be replaced by a piece of code. Give the computer the boring bits to do, but for God's sake, value your workforce and make them feel valued. What's the one thing, if there is one, that would make employers, government, society generally, really sit up in this lens that we're talking about? Well, if I can take it back to well-being, I think it's really important to see that the trajectory of the tech industry, which has been somehow sold to us as an axiom, is to equate progress with more automation no matter what. It's what's called technological determinism. You know, there's a vector, technology is going along it, things are progressing in this one inevitable direction, it's the only direction it can go, everything's going to get more automated, there's no way that we can stop it. And it's just one argument coming out of a very small-minded and impoverished corner of the west coast of America. It's an impoverished definition of progress. What about healthier soil? What about happier children? What about less inequality? What about a richer diversity of wildlife? What about more musicians and poets? You know, there are so many ways, God knows, in which we need to progress that aren't about automation. But it's also a one-way street to a sick and sad and stupid human race on a dead planet. Because the thing that you have to understand about human intelligence is that the mind and the body cannot be separated. So when we don't use our bodies, our minds shrink. Would you count yourself as an AI optimist or pessimist, Sheila? Well, knowing what I've observed recently about human nature and the way it seems to be operating in the world at the moment, I mean... I think, quite frankly, that humanity is on course to destroy itself and probably deserves to do so, for the most part. But, I mean, you know, nothing is inevitable and one doesn't know. I mean, I think the trouble is that there are a lot of bad actors in the world or a lot of people who don't regard themselves as bad but nevertheless see the profit motive or see the, you know, what they call the inevitable march of progress as something that can't be resisted, who are therefore, in a sense, resigned to it happening. But... I think it's also very interesting, and I'm sorry to keep coming back to this, but I think it's really interesting that so many of the people in the tech world who say, who talk about, you know, the Armageddon that's coming from the singularity, whatever that is, or they talk about the Armageddon that's coming from, you know, AIs pitted against each other, they're not thinking about the carbon implications. They're not thinking about the climate emergency. All around them, you know, in California, there are landslides, there are floods, there are droughts, there are wildfires. These things are getting faster. I mean, you talk about exponential growth. The exponential growth of the problems of the climate make the exponential growth of artificial intelligence look like chicken feed. So I think, really, I would be much more worried about other things happening to disrupt it before AI itself disrupts human civilization. And Sheila, for the person listening, the singularity that you just mentioned is the term used to describe the hypothetical point at which AI reaches superhuman levels, uncontrollable, irreversible, a self-determined threat to humanity. 
How imminent do you think that threat or how imminent do you consider that threat to be? Singularity is complete bullshit. The singularity is supposed to be this idea that it will overtake us in every way with every possible you know, kind of understanding. But, I mean, the point is, artificial intelligence, first of all, it can't add up. Secondly, it doesn't know the difference between something that's true and something that's not. Thirdly, it only knows what it's been fed. Fourthly, it makes things up. Fifthly, nobody knows how it works. And overall, as I've said, it has no understanding because it has no experience because it hasn't lived in the world. So when you and I and the listener hears someone talking about the singularity, we should take that with a pinch of salt. I think you should probably buy an entire box of salt to take with it. What's your prediction on the biggest global win that generative AI will provide, Sheila? Well, I'm quite interested in translation. I mean, I'm a great polyglot. I mean, well, I try to be. I speak several languages and I really enjoy speaking them and I really enjoy speaking them in the countries where they're native. But I also think that there are many, many cultures around the world which are disappearing and there are also many cultures where English is the default language. Anywhere where English is not the default language suffers at the moment in this world of computers and generative AI because almost everything is transacted in English or Chinese. But one of the things that machine learning is really good at is translation. So provided that you pay the people who input the data properly, you can have people, which there are at the moment, all over the world, in all sorts of places, speaking all kinds of very interesting minority languages, who are actually training computers to speak and understand those languages and to translate between them. And at the moment, they are shut out of access to all kinds of technology because the machine doesn't understand those languages. And so I think actually one of the things that could be really great would be the progression of more training of these machines in different languages so that those languages can be preserved, so that their culture can be spread, and so that they and other people speaking different languages can understand each other more easily. I think that would be really cool. Beautiful, I love that. And if we turn the same question to health and well-being, what's your prediction on the biggest win there? I think machine learning, I'm going to call it that rather than artificial intelligence, is incredibly useful in healthcare and has been shown to be. It's very, very, very good at looking at millions of scans and x-rays for anomalies although you have to monitor it. There was one particular study that was done, I think, in a couple of years ago now, where a computer was looking at a lot of scans and it came up with lots of false results and it turned out that what it was looking at was the ruler up the side of the scan rather than the image on the scan because it didn't know the ruler was a ruler. But it's very, very good at sifting through enormous amounts of data and finding patterns in it. And so you can use it you know, with x-rays, with all kinds of test results, with blood tests. It's incredibly useful for... As we know, it's incredibly useful for finding new drugs. It's becoming useful for finding new drugs, for analysing, you know, DeepMind used it to analyse the structure of lots and lots of different proteins. And so it's a very, very useful assistant to doctors and to the medical profession to enable them to do their jobs more quickly. Sheila, that has been absolutely riveting. Thank you for your passion, your wisdom and your laser-focused BS detector. Thank you. 
You've been listening to the Well Intel podcast. For more insight on what we do and how we do it, you can find us at wellintellect.com. Contact me directly for a conversation and tailored advisory and do please follow, share and review. And of course, be well. Thank you.